Business Bear, and this is Sawdust Boogie. If you desire to reconcile being an old soul in a new world, stick around. You're welcome here. This is Bear, and you are listening to Sawdust Boogie, episode one. It is 27 degrees outside, and we are sitting by a toasty fire. We're going to talk about my past, my present, what I hope to do in the future, and what we hope to accomplish with this channel. And what I hope you as a reader and a listener get out of it. We hope you stick around. You know, this is not the worst spot I've ever recorded a podcast, I have to say. Well, it's not the worst, but it is the first for me, so. (laughs) I guess it's the best and the worst then, isn't it? I suppose. I suppose. So we are out here, we are, we are sitting next to a lovely fire and a lovely creek and a lovely house that you built uh, with those two hands there. I can't see them right now because they're in your pockets. but They're, they're cold. There. <laughs> I always try to make these more of a conversation than anything, Le- less interview, more conversation kind of thing. Yeah, I hope my answers aren't delayed because when I sit in front of a fire like this, my brain slows down. Well, the good thing... Uh, the good thing about this is there's a wonderful edit button, <laughs> yeah, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah, the beauty of modern recording. Mm-hmm. This just does not suck at all, I've got to no, say. I was going to say, this fire is working right now. Yeah. And it's nice. Anytime I have a conversation with somebody, whether it's on camera or on mic, I try to think about uh, ways I can set folks at their ease so that they can be themselves because it can be... <laughs> You know, to to be yeah. on display to some regard can be a little weird. Yeah. I I think I should be, um, I should take that as a compliment that, that my um, at ease place is, a, is by a fire. <laughs> well, it's mine too, so it works out, yeah, I'd say. I know. And outside in the woods or the mountains and stuff. Yeah. We, we just had a whole mess of snow come through last night. Um. Not so much here. It was snowing, but none of it stuck. But uh, up the northern part of the state, they got a lot of it. And so I heard that and I saw somebody, uh, Scott Kramer, a buddy of mine, posted the picture. I know him. Of some snow in Conway. Mm. But I was in Kinsit, which is near uh, BB area. And we didn't, we just saw nasty rain. So we had some snow here. It was pretty big flakes, about 11 last night. But uh, there's a group that I'm part of called Dirt Roads of Arkansas. And so you get a lot of Newton County, Johnson County, that kind of thing. And uh, we had people posting barns up in the hills, like in the Ozarks and stuff since yesterday. And some of it just like, you know, breaks your heart that you're not there. What's the purpose of this group? Uh, They share pictures from back roads. Oh, okay. And barns and small towns and, you know, all of that kind of thing. And what, it's on Facebook? Yeah. Dirt Roads of Arkansas. Oh, man. I highly recommend that because it's a um, it's a good way to find places to go see, and people tend to be pretty respectful and are, um, you know, folks will be like, well, there's this, but it's on private land, so I didn't go over there. You know, you can see it from the road, though. Right. And everybody's real good to share where their favorite spots are. Um, so did you notice they just tore down one of the, like, original homesteads in Conway mm-mm. recently? No, what was that? So there's three that I know of, and this one was on, uh, I don't know if it's still called 286 at this point in Conway, but 286 near, um, 
Oh, I know what you're talking about. I know exactly the house you're yeah, talking about. It's a, I think it was still a cattle farm, but the whole homestead was there, like the yeah. smoke shack and everything. Mm-hmm. And they recently tore it down, but it looks like whoever did it took the time to save what lumber needed to be saved, which yes, I, I saw that. makes I my was... heart happy. I don't get jealous of the fact that I'm not the one that did it. I just hate when it's not done. Like when yep. somebody appreciates that stuff, it makes my heart super happy. I often used to drive by that place and think that... uh Man, this would be a, like, a great place to shoot a video of some kind oh, or yeah, film for sure. or something. Yeah. And I think that one, they actually kept it mowed. There's another one on, uh, is it um, is it Rocky Point that takes you over to like Best Buy, not Best Buy area, like Office Depot area? That's Amity. Well, no, not not that then. No, uh, not Office Depot. Um, Lower Ridge? Lower Ridge, yeah. Yeah. There's another one on Lower Ridge, but the they one. let it get grown up. But There's I like moss that one on the a lot roof too. Of that one. Yeah, and that one's tough for me to drive by because I see his carport, and there's obviously some lumber that's been stacked under there for <laughs> yes. years and decades, probably. Uh, yeah, and I just think that poor lumber <laughs> <laughs> tugs at my soul. I know the conflict. I know. So anyway, I try not to drive by there because I can't handle that kind of pain. I know, I know exactly the one that that you're thinking of. Yeah, it, it makes you wonder. Um, you know, if you approach somebody on the right day, would they let it go? I know that's the thing. I would, if I had the money to spend on it, I would buy it just to, even if it was just to mow it and leave it the mm-hmm. way it was for now. Um. Yep. Yeah, man, I, I just love that stuff. I live on, uh, between Sunny Gap and two and two eighty and uh, thirty six. And uh, there is, j- just up from the 8-mile store on 36, there is a school building and a gym building from the 40s. And they were part of the of FDR's Public Works projects, if, oh, if I remember sweet. correctly. And the, the folks that own it, they just have flea market stuff in there. And so I've been in the gym building a few times and then the, small, the schoolhouse building once. And man, it's like, oh, let me get a hold of this. Dude, I absolutely eat that stuff up. Like anything antique buildings wise, I love, but especially when it like has to do with industrial or like public works, like that stuff, it blows my mind. There's a gas station in BB, uh, which actually we drove through it last night and I was pointing it out to Jessica again. And it it used to be like a, uh, I don't even know what the building would be called because I don't know architecture that well, but basically the second floor you can drive underneath it, and that's where the pumps would have been. Uh. And so it's just this beautiful brick building, and it's not – I think they probably appreciate it, but nobody's really done anything with it. Yeah. But the whole downtown area of BB is like that. Like, it's just old buildings, and I love that stuff. Yeah, me too. And I told John, I, I just want to find one in a small town and just buy it <laughs> just so I can stuff old junk in it. Yeah, yeah. I have a gentle hope in my heart that at some point um, I'll have some capital to put into something because – there are a bunch of little country stores scattered around, you know, intersections yeah. of highways and things. And um, like there's one at Pelser. There's one at uh, Hankins on Highway 7, which is still open, actually. And you can get a, a heck of a sandwich made by a little old grandma. My, my cousin Tim <laughs> and I went out and hiked Fork, Mount, Fork Mountain once in the Winona Wilderness area. And we drove over there, and it was, you know, the best sandwich you've ever had. She fresh cuts the meat and, you know, all yeah, that kind of stuff. That. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, buy, well, several of those, really, but um, to keep what was good about them, keep the old recipes, you know, do do some, not not renovations, restoration. 
and bring it back to what it was, but then use modern promotion techniques to, you know, get it on Google, make sure people know where it is and, and revive that stuff. Hire, hire people from the area to work there yeah. and just br- bring it back to life without, without changing it so much that it's not that thing anymore, but to make it financially feasible to, to open back up. I'd, I'd love to do that. Yeah. I, I hope that at some point that we become as nostalgic about our uh, vintage highway system as we do everything else, mm. because there are so many cool stores. Like yeah. I, I make a point of if I've got to take like, and I'm not good with numbers, but if I take 67, 167, I'm looking left or right to whatever my old highway oh, yeah. was. And that's where, if I have the time, that's where I want to be. But I get so sad when you drive through those towns and they're dilapidated. And obviously everybody says that, but I think it would be cool if we started to realize as a culture, like how much history is on those roads mm-hmm. and, and find a way to fund that would be, man, that'd be unbelievable. Uh, Mike Wolf of American Pickers helped launch an initiative recently called Nashville's Big Backyard. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. I love that guy. It's, it's the same kind of thing in that he, they, uh, they put together this website and videos and, you know, a, a whole brand basically. And it's all of that between Nashville and I think, is it, is it Orange Beach directly south in Alabama? I don't know. Basically, they do all of those corridors. That's like awesome. Kind of all the veins yeah. of the land, all those old, old highways, and they highlight different things at different spot stops along the way. Well, I know he's big into restoring a lot of old buildings mm-hmm. these days yeah. and like doing them proper, which I think is incredible. Yeah. I've been to uh, their Nashville location, and it's, you know, there, there's a little bit, you know, like there's, there's some TV money there, <laughs> but it, yeah. it, it's still cool to see. Uh, the the building that they redid. It is. I think the the biggest disappointment when I went there was that you expect it to be crammed full of antiques that you can buy. Yep. But obviously, to keep up with the demand of the public wanting to buy unique antiques, yes, would be insane. <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot of like merch and stuff. But yeah. I love like that show. I think that show taught me a lot about. Mm-hmm. Well, really, it got me in trouble because it got me obsessed with even more little niche things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and that's my problem is like I fall in love with something and then I just start to really just dig into it mm-hmm. and research it until I feel like I'm as expert as I can be with the amount of time that I was able to dedicate to it. But uh, especially old stuff, man, I will just obsess over weird stuff. Like recently it was hand planes, vintage hand planes, and a lot of people go through that, but... Uh, man, it's just so cool, you know, yeah. and pre-World War II stuff, it's just built so different yes. than what we know today. Like, a, that was a, such a, divi- a defining time for, for the U.S. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a disposable world we live in now. Yeah, for sure. Really, in, so, in so many ways, and it's, it's sort of ironic coming from me considering what I do for a living, but I, I think the thing that drives me to be good at marketing or communication or whatever you want to call what I do is telling stories that actually matter, that are about things that last. And um, a lot of the people that we work with, that's they they have a story that has roots that go back further than what their present you know, yeah. situation and circumstance is. And like all of my design references are from the last half uh, or the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. Deco. And oh, man, that's, all that's that where stuff. my heart lies yeah. for sure. Yeah. Signage. And I, I'm not into cars per se, but I appreciate its rolling art, a lot of the stuff that oh, was made Oh, yeah, there. dude. The lines on a car are, back then, it, it was they were making cars to be sexy, and that's a whole different ball game with those curves. And and the, the cool thing for me, too, uh, and this is post-World War II, but I like 
how everything was influenced by by the war and especially like vehicles mm-hmm. started to look like the planes from World War Two, And that was intentional with the fins and all this. I yeah. just love I eat that stuff up. If you could come back in any decade in the 20th century. And you were you were already an adult. You were 21. Mm-hmm. What would you come back to? That is tricky. Um it's it's easy to go to kind of like the uh, the TV version or the kind of idealized version of of whatever decade you would say. Yeah, like you're you about think, to get deep on this. Yeah, well, you think like uh, you know, you watch Peaky Blinders and everybody's looks so cool. It's like, well, yeah, but they're, they're crapping in a chamber pot though. <laughs> you know, most people like everybody's getting dysentery and cholera yeah. and stuff like that, and they don't put as much of that on TV. But uh, s- something I appreciate about, say, that era, that era, post-World War One, um, 20s, for example, is, is the poise in that every guy had a fedora and a three-piece suit. I'm generalizing, of course. But even you see, you know, the, uh, there's a picture. I forget where I saw this. It might have been at the Chamber of Commerce in, in Conway where we live. But... There's a picture of all these guys out working on the railroad and they all have suits on because that was just what you wore. And something that you and I have talked about is that what you adorn yourself with, what you gird yourself with influences the way that you that you handle yourself and you handle whatever tasks that you have. And now, on the one hand, I appreciate comfort and I appreciate that um, you don't have to protect dress yourself up to be somebody that you aren't. But at the same time, it's like you walk differently wearing a pair of boots than you do a pair of house shoes. Yeah. And I think that is something that we've, that we've lost is there isn't that perception of, uh, of poise and that what you wear might, um, not just communicate something about you to other people, but also may communicate something to you about yourself and how you wear it. And that is something I appreciate about, at least what comes through photographs of that decade is yeah. that it, it's, it seemed like people were being influenced in their poise by what they were wearing. And I think that that is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Okay. Now your turn. So a lot of mine is probably based off of cars and gear, musical gear that came out during that era. Mm-hmm. And so I would say I would love for it to be the forties. But obviously, the first half, we weren't getting much done production-wise. So I say the 50s because the colors were incredible in the 50s. Um, The guitars really, you know, like the the Telecaster in 52. Mm -hmm. I think 52. I hope. I should know that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The Strat in 54. I mean, there were just so many big deals. Um, Les Paul invented multi-track recording. Yeah. uh, The the Rogers drums that I love, those are early 50s. You know, that's when they started to standardize drum sizes within like, you know, everybody kind of knew what you would have a 13-inch tom or whatever. But uh, for instance, my early 50s Rogers, the toms are like a 13 and an eighth. Mm. So... It was before somebody slammed a hammer and said, I'm tired of this. It's 13 or you guys can't build drums, you know? So um, a lot happened for that, you know? But I I would say 50s for sure. Some of my favorite colors are the Fender Surf colors, which were stolen from GM and Ford, uh, like Fiesta Red, Coral Red. Man, whoo. That's when they started recording the tape too, isn't it? 
You know, I don't know as much about the recording side of things. Yeah, what did they record on before tape? Wax. Okay. And there was there's a little bit of wire, but I don't think that was even as widespread as wax was. Oh, okay. Yeah, tape, man. That's a whole different ballgame. <laughs> Isn't it, though? That's what uh, my first recorder, I, I probably got when I was 17 or 18, and it was a Tascam Porta O2, I think was the mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. And it literally didn't even have an XLR. I had to have a little adapter to go oh, from XLR yeah. to eight, the quarter inch. There was a guy I knew that had that board, the, the M32 or whatever it was. Yeah. That they, um, they had the board, a couple of boards in that line, and then they had the tape recorder, and they weighed like 6,000 pounds. But uh, it, it was all, uh, I think it was all RCA outs or something weird. It wasn't XLR. The whole board was So like definitely that. all mine had was RCA outs, but literally the microphone itself had to be like yeah, a guitar what, input yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. And um, But this was cassette, and uh, it, I, I don't know that I recorded a ton on it, but also I only made one legitimate tape. And that was my first band. We recorded our first EP when I think we were probably 14, mm. maybe 13. And that was on cassette tape. And my church, uh, Mount Carmel Baptist Church, props for doing this a long time ago. That's in Cabot, yeah. It is in Cabot, I yeah. That's where, I, that's where I, that's my stomping grounds or my chomping grounds we if I'm going to. We knew some people that, uh, that were. Yeah. Um, so they had a cassette duplicator for the <laughs> choir, which used to be a huge thing in church's yes. choir, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, so they could hand out the music for them to practice in their whips. And, uh, so they let us borrow that and we were able to use the, the program, which was probably had to have been like a windows 95 computer. Surely. And, and we were able to make multicolor like labels for the cassettes and then the inserts. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And uh, they were pretty legit. I have two copies because I had my own. And then when my dad passed away, I, I found one in his little collection. So I kept it, but uh, oh man, that's got me thinking. My my first uh, high school band, we we recorded our first EP live to mini disc. I had a mini disc player. And yeah. Boy, was it bad! Yeah. I remember thinking, you know, the first time you you hear yourself recorded and then played back, you think, well, this I, I'm playing Madison Square Garden next week. This is amazing. And then you know, if you if you listen to it later and have some perspective, some of the warts begin to show. And I remember very clearly, uh, I had some presentation in school to make and I was always trying to find ways to get music into whatever else I was doing and find excuses to bring guitars to things or to you know play stuff I'd worked on and I remember being in front it was a small class there were only a few of us but uh (laughs) I remember playing this uh this demo that I'd recorded you know a year or two earlier and (laughs) and there was a particular note that was more than a little blue that I had sung and you know, I'm up there in front of people and I was like, oh, that's, that actually <laughs> sounds quite bad. I didn't realize this at the time. <laughs> it's wild, man. I yeah. mean, I've, I feel like I've been on uh, a quite a few records at this point in my life. And to go back, like the other day I had to, we were talking about it with my old computer. I had to resurrect that hard drive, which had a file on there uh, that said Vio. And I thought, holy crap, that's my Vio backup. And so I opened it up, and there were so many records on there that we had recorded as kids. And these are good records. I mean, we paid a studio, and and so they sounded great, but it's inexperienced yeah. kids, you know. And uh, just hearing, the, the like, some of the stuff we did just cracked me up. Like, we sampled, you remember Fear Factory? Yeah. That band? Mm-hmm. 
we sampled like an, an intro to one of their songs where there was like ambulances and fire fire trucks and stuff and put it on there, you know, and it was at a time when piccolo snares were really popular and I have that snare cranked up so high. Yeah. It sounds like it's going like to explode in a second. Yeah, exactly. Right around that time frame. So it's funny to listen to that stuff. So we thrift shop. Uh, this was Blue Chair Studios. Uh, I've, I've recorded there. And so then you'll appreciate this. It was $25 an hour <laughs> Yeah. on a Fostex 8-track. Oh, man. And we saved up 200 bucks, so we had an eight-hour day to record five songs and, and do vocal overdubs, you know? And it's just funny now to think that he's 200 a, bucks, you know? He's got and, an Eve console in there. Yeah, now. exactly. I don't know what his hourly rate is. He better not charge me. But... Um, <laughs> You know, he's, it's just so different now. That was in that yeah. little, that tiny little studio that he had before he built the big one. But yeah. All right. Yeah. So fifties, fifties gear. That's, that's my dream. That's my, that's my weakness. That is what, if you walk in that house and start looking at gear mm. and cars, fifties <laughs> is really what's got me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, my, n- not in any close proximity, but my, my family historically is English and, uh, so I, I have sort of a, uh, this is even before I knew this, but um, I have a sort of a draw towards things British. I, I love the way that they use language because it's the language I speak. And um, it, they they have a different way of thinking about things and the way that they process language. But then just, uh, you know, the country itself and the buildings and just the that thing down at the, down in the soil kind of thing, you know, um, I'm very, very attracted. Yeah all that um i don't i don't remember the exact phrase or who said it but basically if you think america has history go to europe Mm. and it's just 10 times deeper than we can even fathom you know yeah and i've been to europe quite a few times i would say somewhere in the range of or like the uk especially probably in the range of eight to ten times i've been over there for three or four week long tours winter summer you know it doesn't matter i've been there and I love it over there, man. And the more you go, the more history you dig up. I've been in so many catacombs, I can't even count at this point, yeah. you know, like just historic bars. I know there's a there's a bar, I think it's called Ye Old Salutation Inn. I'd have to find the picture because I took a picture of the outside. But it's so old, it was like in the 1400s was when this bar was opened. Yeah. The the knights would stop in there before they went on their crusades. <laughs> Man. Like, just think about how yeah. ridiculous that statement even sounds, I you know? know? So just you go in there, there's not a straight wall to be had. It's all just stone and yeah. they've mounted outlets to it just so they can make it work. It's crazy. I think what I like about that kind of thing, and I, I'm a sucker for a period piece too. I think that's why I like the whole 20s thing, just... um a lot of that stuff is filmed in the places that are still there from whenever. Yeah. And it just, uh, it reminds you that there were people before you. And it reminds you that what is important to you in 10 years time may not be important to you or the next people who are going to live wherever you are. And it just, there, there's a, uh, it's good to have that mindfulness, especially when everything, there's so much, so much about modern life is so disposable and so kind of transient and fleeting. <sighs> Gives you something to, to ground yourself with or some additional things, I guess. Yeah, I think it's probably similar to the way I think about music, which is not that I don't want to dive into the new music that's out there. It's that my mind is so busy focusing on everything else that's been recorded in the past 50, 75 years, you know, 
um, that I just don't think I'll ever catch up with that stuff. And there's so many lessons and just amazing things to be learned from, from just, man, especially U.S. history. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm way into that. But, yeah, absolutely, dude. I want to make it known. 27 degrees. This is probably the last time I'll record a podcast in 27 <laughs> degrees. I'm, saying not, I'm not saying that, that in uh, absolute, but I'm saying it's pretty sure I'm not going to do this again. You're not regretting your decision, are you? No. No, I'm having a great time. Okay. But the backside of me is a lot colder than the front side. <laughs> I'll put it to you that way. Well, we'll try to, to make sure that, uh, that your backside is nice and cozy. I know. I'm I might concerned. be disconnecting this mic from the stand and turning around at some point. <laughs> is what's going to happen. Well, we've been talking a lot about um, uh, things from the past that are important to us and kind of what some of the things that have shaped us. But um, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where were you born? So I was born in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And I have to say every time that I was born at the Air Force Base, not the prison. <laughs> Is that, a, is that all that's out there? <laughs> yeah, I guess. And I guess maybe people just look at me and think, oh, that guy was born in a prison. <laughs> Seems looks, a bit strong. Yeah, I hope, I hope I'm misunderstanding people. But yeah, so my parents uh, were military, Air Force. Mm. My mom and my dad both were. And uh, so that's where I was born. And then my parents actually divorced, I think, before I was a year old. And then uh, my mom remarried a few years later, and he was military as well. Mm. And so my whole childhood was, was basically two things would be custody battles and, and uh, transfers for the military. So I bounced to a lot of places because of it. Bit, bit of a transient existence? I would say ways. so, yeah. I lived, uh, you know, California, Oklahoma. I lived on an island off the coast of Portugal for a few years. Because, of course, you did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that was a trip as a kid, you know, being out there because there, it was such a small little group of islands, and there was really nothing for, I mean, there weren't, like, stores for us. There was the military base, and it had a BX, which was like their mall, like a mini mall, basically, I guess. Yeah. But uh, my grandparents on my stepdad's side would, would send us just giant boxes of toys for Christmas, I guess to make up for the fact that the rest of the time was so <laughs> boring. Like, Yeah. And, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I remember we would literally chase goats for fun. I mean, that's <laughs> a little like... That's all you had to do out there. And, uh, geez, I thought South Arkansas as a kid was. I know, yeah. It's a whole a different type of redneck out there. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, so anyway, they would send, like, I remember when the Ninja Turtles came out, we got huge boxes with basically probably every toy that, that you could buy for Ninja Turtles that first year. And we each got our own box of the exact same stuff, so we didn't have to share. Mm. So it was that one year, and then I think the next year it was Batman. So that was definitely like a highlight, getting all those toys. But it was it was weird living over there. But I had a good time. I think that it, like a couple things that I remember vividly were getting to the island with my mom and my brother, and my stepdad Dave wasn't going to be there yet. And so we had our first little rental house. And that was right after the Bangles came out with, uh, I'm not sure what the record's called, but it has Walk Like an Egyptian and a bunch of other tracks on it. And that was a, that was a huge record for me because as a kid, I remember thinking, man, these are some killer hmm. tunes, you yeah. know? 
and you just didn't have access to a lot of music over there. But anyway, yeah, so there, and then the reason I ended up in Little Rock was probably, I guess this was about 94, 95. And uh, my stepdad, my mom had already retired from the Air Force. My stepdad had his last assignment to choose. And my mom had family here in Little Rock. And so we decided to come here. And I was actually, my dad had custom custody of me at the time in Arizona. And I was a middle child. And I felt kind of just, you know, neglected and unhappy. And I wanted to be with my mom. Yeah. And so I decided at that point to move with my mom and my stepdad. And uh, my brother decided to stay with my dad, which was tough on on both of us, you know. But um, so I came here, and I guess I was about eleven or twelve. And then, you know, I had obviously already knew my uncle Dale, and I knew my grandpa Russum. But those next five or six years were super. I mean, that was a big part of what formed who mm-hmm. I am today. Yeah was I, I remember going to my uncle's house, which was in Jacksonville at the time, Gravel Ridge, if any of you Gravel Ridge listeners out there, what's up? Know where that is. Yeah. Kellogg. Yeah, exactly, yeah. What a cool little middle of nowhere, just yeah. used car dealership. Anyway, so uh, I remember going out to his shop, and I don't know if I asked him for, for tools or if he decided I needed them, but he put together my first toolbox mm, yeah. and sent me home with that. And that was a game changer for me. And then I remember the first summer that I decided to go stay with my grandparents because they offered to pay me money to work on the farm. And it just was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Just that was when I really fell in love with working with my hands. Every morning I would wake up and just go with my grandpa to, you know, first we would have to do farm stuff with the crops or whatever. And then then we would go to the shop and just start working. Mm. And uh, it was just, I will never forget that. And and obviously, I don't, we don't have time on this podcast, but you know that I recently visited that farm again. And obviously, he's been passed away for 20 years, but it was like, I felt like I had never missed a beat. Like, I yeah. knew every little thing. I've had those kind of experiences, And too. I was, um, you know, actually, I wrote about this in the intro of the book. That's what the... That's the intro of the book. We haven't even really talked about this, but it's that experience of me going back to that farm. And uh, I was telling my wife that, like, looking up at the loft, which people can't see where we are right now, but I literally live in the loft of a barn. That is <laughs> yeah. literally the home that I've built for myself. And going back to that original barn loft and, and just putting my hands on the, the rungs of those ladders, this 150-year-old oh, barn, I just it all flooded back, and it yeah. was a trip. It really was. It, so it's cool how um like your your senses record memories. It isn't just you have this picture that plays in your head. A smell can do it, or like the touch of a fabric, or something like that. No, no doubt's Tragic Kingdom, buddy, puts me right back to thirteen years old <laughs> in my room with my huge stereo, and I can literally remember everything about junior high. Like, yeah, in that instance. Yeah, it's 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 weird. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, good record. So, um, was this uh. When you got kind of planted in that spot, was that the first time that you felt like, okay, I've got a place I belong here? Or were there, I mean, because I, um, I didn't move as much as you did, but my, my dad was in the ministry. And so we lived a few different places when I was younger. And particularly when I got a little bit older and it had happened several times, it was 
it was weird to think about, okay, now we're going to go live in a different spot and that's supposed to be home now. So was that, um, had you felt like there was home or a place for you before that, or was that kind of the first time? So I think that's the beautiful thing about growing up in the military is that everywhere you go, you're surrounded by people that are in the same predicament. Mm, yeah. Like they're all new. They all have just as much trouble coping with the fact that they just moved somewhere completely different after two years of being in the same spot. Yep. And so it's just, and it's a melting pot of culture too. That's the thing. So I don't think that I ever felt like I wasn't in the right place. I just soaked up everywhere I was mm. as much as I could as a kid who didn't really know. You know, I think like one of the biggest things I think about at 37 is like, man, I wish I would have paid more attention in school. You know, <laughs> like that stuff yeah. would really pay off now. Yeah. But um, I did as much as I could with the brain that I had to soak up what I could. And so I never really felt out of place. And I don't know that I ever got to Arkansas and felt like. I could tell you when Arkansas felt like home to me. So I had been touring for uh, professionally at this point. So this was. You know, I had already been to Europe a couple times. I had already been to Japan. And and I knew that I didn't want to live in Arkansas. I just thought there's got to be somewhere better for Bear. I just got mm -hmm. that nickname, by the way. Um, and so I just, every city we went to, I thought this could be it. Maybe it's mm -hmm. Asheville, North Carolina. Maybe yeah. it's Nashville. Maybe it's Los Angeles. All of those were tempting. And then finally one day it hit me when I came back home. I was just like, man, I don't. I guess this feels like the best place I've ever been. And that was a pivotal moment for me because that's when I realized, okay, well, it's time to, time to plant your roots hmm. and, uh, and to find a place of your own. So ironically enough, right about that time, my stepdad and my mom had decided they were going to buy a new house. And it was almost like Dave knew that I needed that. And he said, hmm. yeah. I know you can't afford to pay the mortgage, but I know you will be able to soon. So why don't I cover the majority of it and you pay what you can monthly? Man. And so that was the start of it. I had a, you know, 1,650 square foot home that was built in the nineties that needed a little bit of work. And, and that's really what drove me to like buy my first table saw Yeah, and to really start to try and wrap my head around the right way to do things. Because now I had this, this thing that was worth a hundred thousand plus dollars that I'd never had before and <laughs> yeah. the pressure I felt it every time, you know, so. Well, and to have somebody um, invest in you and trust that you're going to make good on that investment, that, that really does something yeah. to you in a it good way. It was big, yeah. And so it was crazy because I remember like every year he would be like, okay, well, do you think you can afford $500 now? Yeah. And then, you know, the next year we're like, can you afford six fifty? And so it just slowly <laughs> built up, you yeah. know, until he said, guess what? You're paying the whole thing now, you know? So that was a trip. And uh, so, so that was really the, that was where I established myself as far as the, the handy side of me, I think. It's interesting, you know, uh, I've lived in Arkansas all my life and have been a lot of other places, but never lived anywhere else. And of course you hear, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. Why would anybody you know, want to live here? But when, when you had that realization that, that this is where I want to be, what, what was it about here that let you know that this is where you belonged? Well, obviously it was the nature for me. I mean, it's, yeah. it is literally the natural state. It's, it's, it's incredible, you know, what all is available here. And I think a lot of it was just like, I know that as a, as a, as a state that it's, it's generalized that we are, you know, ignorant rednecks, but 
I think that the reality is, is that the, the more I met people from this state that, that were born here, that mm-hmm. grew up here, the more I realized that they cared about a different sort of knowledge than everybody else. And that knowledge was like basic survival. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't really have a good example, but that was, that was huge for me. And I knew that I wanted to surround myself with that, that type of people, right? Mm. People that were, that were able and willing to help each other. Everybody's so friendly out here, just almost to a, to a, a like a fault, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and that gets made fun of too, you know, like, bless your like heart. that everybody's, yeah, yeah, bless your heart. My mom said that all the time, but just the, you know, that whole, uh, everybody wants to say hi to you on the street. Like yeah. I remember growing up in, in Arizona, spending a couple years there and spending a couple years in California as a kid. And, and everybody was just so about themselves and they had a path they were walking literally, and you did not need to get in the way of that path. Mm. And they did not have time to look up at you and even give you a friendly nod. Like, hope your day is going good, buddy. Yeah. And Arkansas, it's just, it's, Everybody wants to be there for you, no matter what level it's on, you know, whether it's to tell you what time it is, whether you need to get to Shirley, Arkansas, and you don't have a map, <laughs> you know, like everybody wants to help. And so I think that was really what, what attracted me to it was probably the people and the, and the nature. These are things I've thought about, too, because when, when you're it's uh, I think about wisdom a lot as opposed to knowledge. And sometimes they go together. But wisdom is. When you ha- when you have a bunch of folks around who have to make something happen with their hands to make their way, like we got, we we don't think of where we live as rural, or at least I don't really. But um, when you, you know, there's ranches around, and there's farms around, and there's timber around, and there's agriculture, and we have some manufacturing in our town as well. And um, you don't necessarily have time to have like. <laughs> To worry about existential dread when the crops have to come in yeah. <laughs> or, some, or yeah. something like that. Or, or it's like, well, this cow doesn't really care about your feelings. You just got to make something happen. I think it's a simpler worry. Yeah. Yeah. And it isn't that um, it isn't that that other stuff doesn't matter or isn't important. It's just that I, I think it, it, it gives you perspective. And I think we lose perspective when we have one of those or the other of those things, kinds of things out of balance, maybe. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that especially, you know, in this this fast-paced world that we live in, and I know that sounds cliche to say that, but and I know that my job is not necessarily as fast-paced as others, you know, but yeah. um you know, I I I have a lot going on at that store, whether it's the retail side or the repair shop or the lessons. I mean, I'm constantly pulled in different directions. And when I get home at the end of the day, my brain, it just wants to relax. And there's something to be said for me about coming out into the shop, turning the lights on, even if it's literally just pushing sawdust across the floor, there's something to be said about Mm. being able to let my brain relax and my hands just do the work. Yeah. And uh, that's that's been a big deal for me lately, especially the, the crazier my life gets. So you talked a little bit about, well, quite a bit actually, about um about shaping experiences that you had when you were younger. Are, are there other things that stand out in your memory of moments you can look back at and, and with the perspective of time spent, say, hey, that was a moment that really set me up for where I am now or where I'm going? A lot of who I am, I've, I've, like I've told you, came from my grandpa and my uncle. 
the one thing that didn't come from them would be the the musical side of me, which is also obviously a huge part of who I am. Yeah. So the musical side of me, which I think I can attribute to my dad, like uh, as a kid, I remember him having a huge record collection and having free reign with that, no matter how many sets of headphones I destroyed as a kid or (laughs) how many needles I destroyed on his record player. Yeah. Um, I was just allowed to listen to what I want, and I remember asking for my first first pair of drumsticks at like ten years old, and they were there on my birthday, and uh, and it was just such a a pivotal moment for me, you know. So I think about that a lot, sitting down in front of that record player with my dad and I having those giant headphones from the time on, and just learning about funk and soul and. Hispanic music and anything he could throw at me at that time. And so that's when I really started to get thirsty for musical knowledge. Mm. And that was the moment where I said, man, drums is what I want to be. As soon as I asked for that first pair of drumsticks, I knew that's what I wanted. And I did anything I could to be great at it. And so I worked my butt off at it. And the funny thing was I was living in Arizona with my dad at the time. Like I said, they had band in the fifth grade. So I signed up for band. Obviously, I had already learned some rudiments because I was eager to do it. And so I got in there and was able to, you know, get into the percussion section. And I am I would assume that I was able to stay up in the higher chairs, you know. And so then that year was over. And that was the year that I decided to move. That summer was the summer that I decided to move with my mom. So the summer before sixth grade, well... Cabot schools didn't offer band till the seventh grade. So I had a whole year where I couldn't play drums for the school. Mm. But I remember calling my dad and it was not easy conversations after you just left your dad to go live with your mom for yeah. the rest of your childhood. But but I remember calling him and asking him if he didn't mind sending my snare drum. <laughs> and so he mailed my snare drum and that just fueled it again. Yeah. It really did. I just I just took up right where I left off. And my friend Justin Ballantyne at the time had just gotten a Memphis bass for his birthday. And so we said, well, let's try and start a band. And that was it, man. I just, I never looked back. Another uh, pivotal moment that, that I like to laugh at, but, and I hope my dad can laugh now, my stepdad. But uh, I remember when I started my first rock and roll band, which was a Christian rock and roll band, that he said, I don't think that's a wise move. Because rock and roll leads to sex and drugs. <laughs> and I remember saying to him, like, no, like, this is a Christian band, you know? And we did good as that band, but man, did yeah. he not just catch me doing every wrong thing that he could <laughs> from that point till I was out of the house, right? And I also remember that my grades, <laughs> the minute I started a rock and roll uh, band, yeah, yeah, yeah. went from A's and B's to C's and D's yes. like overnight, like other than in, my band, which I always aced it. There's know. an inverse relationship between number of gigs and <laughs> grade level. It was, man. And, uh, and you know, we, we were not like just your garage bands. We were, you, you know, as soon as we were able to drive, we had little mini tours booked. Mm-hmm. And that was a time, I don't know if you can still do this, but at that time you could just go play for youth groups for a long yeah, weekend. Yeah, you can't now. I remember that. Yeah, and that was such a cool time. And then, uh, you know, my buddies were in the band Green Olive Tree, and they were doing really well at the time and touring all over the U.S. I used to go see them quite, yeah. quite a lot. Well, actually. Justin, when he went to, to be uh, a music major at UCA, occasionally he couldn't make a gig because he would have to do UCA stuff. 
So I started playing with those guys mm-hmm. too. And uh, I remember that like my stepdad used to be pretty tough on me w- with the music stuff because he knew that it was keeping me from being good academically. But I don't think he was, he, he wasn't experienced enough as a father, I don't think, to realize that he probably needed to nurture that part of me. Mm, yeah. He just assumed that that was what made me, like that that was my extracurricular joy. So he would take that away when the grades weren't where they needed to be. And I remember that the manager of Green Olive Tree would have to call him, and she was married to his best friend. <laughs> so she'd call and she'd say, "Hey, Dave, we need uh, we need Brandon to go play play for oh, us this weekend." Great. Yeah, and he'd be like, "No, he's grounded." And I remember her literally saying, "Like, Dave, like, let him go. It's for a Christian retreat. Like, we need him to play drums." And he would say, "Well, that's fine, but you need to be at church on Sunday morning." And we would drag in there. I mean, just after play and Saturday oh, night. Oh my goodness, dude! It was so miserable getting to church on Sunday mornings. But there was no slack on that. There was no. He was he was tough as a kid. Yeah. But I remember, and and this would be, I guess, another pivotal moment would be sometime in my twenties. Maybe maybe it was around the time that I des- that he decided that I was buying the house i think from him kind of was the first validation that like this music thing is probably not not just something that he's going to do as a kid like he's going to succeed at this maybe mm-hmm. but i remember he had retired from the military and he worked for the public school system uh, in the computer department and he came to me and he was he sat me down and i don't think it was meant to be a serious conversation but he said he said i owe you an apology I never realized how bad kids can be. And I never realized that you weren't really that bad of a kid, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So I know it took a lot for him to say that, you know, but that's, that's quite a compliment. It really was. Yeah. You know, it was, it was big for him. So, uh, yeah. And now he and I have a great relationship, you know, uh, but it was tough growing up in that house and childhood was tough for me. It really was, man. I just wanted to be in a band on the road. That's all I could really think about. That and my BMX bike. Well, I think this is a good transition kind of from from past to present because you are now not on the road. You still work in music in, in a sense, but you're not doing, at least not to the same degree, the same kinds of things as you were. So um, now you, you, know, you have a nine to five now. You have a house that is, that is yours that you built. You have a wife. Um, what what was it that changed that um, that these things became more what you wanted and became what were important to you versus what kind of you were shooting for then? The thing that, about the being on the road full time anyway, and I, and I was full time on the road uh, probably about seven years full time. Mm. And when I say full time, I mean 250 to 300 days a year Shoot. on the road. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you would be gone for, uh, average would be a six week long tour. Long would be 12 weeks long before you even get to come home to your bed, 12 weeks. And one thing that I always have to tell people is like, it doesn't matter if it's a million dollar bus when there's eight stinky dudes sharing that for 12 weeks, even with hotels on days off, it's still, it's tough. Right. But, um, so the the thing about that is what I realized was, yeah, I'm out here, I'm making good money, you know, I'm I'm somewhat living my dream. I wasn't playing every night. I was a tech for the majority of that, but I was still making good money. I was obviously at that point I was very nerdy about the 
the technical aspects of things. So it was a great job for me. And, but the thing was, is every time I would come home, it was, it was so few and far between that I couldn't even enjoy what I was able to save and spend my money on. So uh, one thing that I will never forget is how many times I got frustrated by a gas motor that wouldn't run when I came back home to it. (laughs) Cause it just been sitting right. Yeah. Yeah. Just for months. And obviously, you know, there's probably going to be some listener at some point that's going to be like, you should have just stabilized your fuel. But (laughs) when you're 23 years old, you don't think about stabilizing your fuel. (laughs) You know, you think about, yeah, how many bush light 30 packs do I need for the weekend? You know, like yeah. the priorities are different. So that was a big frustration. The other one that I remember technically is that I was way into vintage uh, stereo gear and it was always breaking. Like every time yeah. I'd come home, I wanted to, to crank it. a vinyl record because I would buy vinyls, just gobs of them on the road and bring them back in like yeah. a little bag every time I flew. And every time I would go to fire it up, something would be wrong. And I'm just... So those little things combined with the fact that I felt like my friends were moving on without me. Mm. And that was a big one for me. Yeah. Every time I would talk to, you know, like Chad, he would be in a different band that didn't involve me. Or I would have helped him write this song and now it was, had come to fruition with somebody else behind the drum set. Or my best friend John would be, you know, finish the paint on his, uh, his 66 galaxy. And I wasn't there to help him prep the body. Like that stuff really started to eat at me. And then obviously my family at the same time, like I just wasn't able to see him. I hadn't really built my own family at that point. Um, I was dating a girl for, for a long time and she was, we, we had the house together, but, uh, all of that combined just made me think, man, the money is not worth not being able to enjoy what I, what I want to enjoy. Mm. And not everybody thinks that way. Obviously there's plenty of people that stay in that business for a long time and and love it, but it just wasn't my thing. I don't know that I ever, at that point in my life, I didn't crave touring. I craved making music, but like we've discussed, my safe haven is in a studio. Like Mm. that's where I love to be. And so um, that was kind of the deal. The irony in all that is that when I finally decided, uh, to get off the road or, or Preston made me the offer and we started to work together, um, uh, that's when everything started to kind of go away. So like my mom passed away in 2011. Uh, I lost three grandparents that year. I mean, it just, it didn't stop. Right. So all the way through to 2016, which was when my dad passed away just so many things were taken away from me that I just thought, man, what the, what the heck just happened here? You know, I just left a really good paying, really exciting lifestyle to come home. And, and now none of this is here anymore. Mm. And so that was that pivotal moment for me when I said, I'm going to sell this house and I'm going to buy land because there's nobody to tell me not to anymore. <laughs> yeah. There's nobody to say, I don't want to live on a bare concrete floor with barely a flushable toilet while you build the house. There was nobody to say, you can't spend your whole week digging up trees to prepare for a barn. Like mm-hmm. there was nobody to stop me from doing it. And so that's when I decided that was what I was going to do. So, um, and to scoop back a little bit, so the reason I got off the road was because um, I was actually flying back from Europe after a, a a winter tour, and I had an email from Preston um, asking if 
if I was willing to do some guitar repair for him. And so I emailed him back and I said, dude, normally I wouldn't because I'm busy on the road. I said, but the guys that I work for are going to make a record. I've got some time off. Uh, why don't I, why don't I just come out and help you out a little bit? I'll do some part-time repair work. This is at a uh, Palmer music company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Palmer music company, 506 West Oak street, <laughs> Conway, Arkansas, seven, two, zero, three, two, five, zero, one, three, two, seven, eight, one, two, nine. Come on by. We got the deals and we got the steals. Palmermusic.co. That's, that is correct. Not dot com. No. Uh, so anyway, so uh, he offered for me to come out and do some part-time repair. And I thought, man, this is perfect. The, actually, the band that I was with at the time was paying a retainer. So I was able to sit at home and do nothing but get paid by the band. That'll do. And so I thought, well, I might as well go work on some guitars while I'm at it. So I did that, and I kind of just fell in love with that place. I mm-hmm. fell in love with the vibe and with the the vision that he had for the business. And we had a lot of things in common, and I found that I was going to be – I really felt like I had a place to grow, and I had kind of gotten stagnant in the job on the road because I had figured it all out to me. Mm-hmm. Like a, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a guitar tech on the road is not the same thing as a guitar repair man. It's not the same as a luthier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so – I wanted more from that. And so this job gave me the opportunity to do that. And so we sat down and we had a talk and I said, listen, man, this band's going to go back out. I want to say it was 2013 or 14. I really can't remember now. And I said, but you've got basically a year to get me full-time money. I know you're not going to pay me what I made on the road, but I have to pay for my mortgage. Mm -hmm. And so somehow we figured it out. I, I don't know how to this day that we made that squeeze that money out of that business at that point. Uh, probably cause Phil wasn't there to tell us no, <laughs> <laughs> but it's becoming uh, a theme, nobody yeah. around to say, Hey, don't do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but we made it work. And so I told, I told the band, uh, I'm not going back out. And that was it. And you know, the funny thing about that is I still get calls to this day from bands that want me to go do that again. Mm. And I know I could leave right now and make three times what I make and be able to see the world. Yeah. But I would rather be right here in Valonia, Arkansas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you, when you belong somewhere, it makes you able to make those kinds of decisions. It, It definitely does. So here we are 2020 seven or something years later, and I'm still working there. I still love it. It's an incredible job. I'm fortunate to have it. I'm the store manager. I'm the repair shop manager. And I would be what we would call the lessons mentor, I suppose. And I guess you get a title like that when you've taught your instrument for over 20 years. That's, yeah, that's a good stretch so, of time. Um, happy to have it. Um, I think that my favorite part about my job is just interacting with all the different people yeah. on all those different levels. And I love teaching. I mean... It's one of my favorite things to do to know that somebody walked away with even just the littlest tidbit of knowledge that they didn't have before they talked to me. And uh, so that's really what, what keeps me going, I think. As with anything that you like or even love, to work hard at something and to try to do a good job and be a good steward of it, obviously it consumes your resources to whatever degree. And sometimes you have seasons where it's more challenging than others. You have good days and bad days. What, uh, what are some things that refill your tank, as it were? What are the things that, whether they be activities that you do or, or places or people, what, uh, what sort of restores you so that you're able to go back out and, and 
tackle the things that you need to tackle. Uh, we touched on it earlier, but it, it really is just being able to shut my brain down and let my hands do the work. And so for me, that means uh, obviously living out here on, on this land, it means so many different things. Uh, it's only 15 acres, but my goodness, does it constantly provide something that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and so I usually let that motivate me. And then once I choose something to start on, I, I just, I'm, I'm a, I'm a planner. I'm a meticulous organizer with a lot of things like that. So once I have my plan and I have everything right where I need it to be, then I can dive into that job and I can shut the brain off and I can just work. Mm. And that's one of my favorite things to do. So, you know, out here, a big one for me is processing lumber, whether that's turning it into firewood or turning it into uh, literally furniture grade lumber for me to use in my shop. Those are, that's a big one for me. And that one, that's maybe the biggest because I get to see a live tree in the course of a year or two turn into a piece of furniture mm, or a yeah. stair tread in my home or a vanity in my bathroom and that stuff. I mean, those are the little like attaboys that I need in my life. I don't necessarily need your compliments to thrive, but I need to, I need to be able to stare at something that I've accomplished and know like, yeah, there's probably somebody that could do it better, but you did a pretty dang good job <laughs> for not having a clue what you were doing. Yeah. And so again, for me, that's all in that research and that preparation. And that's kind of, you know, I was thinking about driving here, like I knew we were probably going to get into what the point of all this is, what we're doing here, why I'm, why I'm throwing money at this or why I'm writing a book or why I'm, why I'm doing the, you know, the podcast and the YouTube. And I think that that's what it boils down to um, is just that I may not know everything, but if I decide to do something, then I'm going to dive into it wholeheartedly and I'm going to figure out everything I can, the pros, the cons, the good information, the bad information, and I'm going to sift through it and I'm going to come up with my own game plan. And it's very rare that that game plan does not work out for me when I, when I load the front end with all that hard, you know, brain work or just yeah. research. So th that's what I want. I, I guess I want people to know that if they're going to be following me and seeking advice from me, that that means I've probably seeked it out from many, many, many different sources <laughs> yeah. to come up with what I think is the best way to do things. That's another big driving factor for me. So this this new venture that you're on, Sawdust Boogie, it's a podcast, it's a YouTube channel, it's some social media, yeah, but uh, the whole point of it, it seems like, is to get, to create a community of people that can connect with each other, that value some of the same kind of things that you value, that you've been talking about here, maybe whose history or whose life story overlaps with yours in some way, maybe not in terms of what happened to them, but the principles that they were exposed to at key, at key points. So what are, what are some of the things that you hope to see happen as a result of creating this endeavor and pursuing it? So one thing I think is that I don't think, I mean, obviously I want to connect with the people that have the same style of history that I have in my life, but I think that I want this to be more for the people that don't have that history that, mm. 
that didn't have the uncle to give him a toolbox or didn't have a dad to teach him how to tie a tie properly or didn't have a grandpa to tell them that they needed to hold the hammer at the back end if they wanted to drive a nail with efficiency. Like those things, that, that's the type of person that I want to understand that in this world that we live in with Instagram and Facebook and filters and all these different things, you can make it seem so glamorous and like everybody can do things so perfectly. But on the surface, everybody is flawed, everybody is learning, and everybody is somewhere on their journey. And I guess I want people to know that it's not going to start if you don't take that first step. And so I want people to be able to come to me with with their problems so I can help solve them. Mm-hmm. And, and hopefully I already know about it. And it's, and I'm t- like... I get excited right now just talking to you. Like, it's not the freezing cold that's got my jitters going right now. (laughs) It's the fact that I love so much the opportunity to see somebody else grow and and build on themselves. And that's huge for me. That's something that I really relate to because while I don't work with my hands, I work with my mind in this, which is not to say that you don't. That's not what we're talking about. But that when... um, when I can help unlock somebody's potential in their thought patterns, in their conception of themselves, and what they believe that they're capable of, because nobody has exposed them to those ideas before, you know, uh, that I, I have those moments too. When you see the light bulb go on in over somebody's head, when something you say lands on them, and you can tell that's a key and a lock. That yeah. opened up a new way of thinking yeah. for them and they can see themselves and what they do for what it is. And they can, they can get a sense of the story they're living, if I can put it that way. So I relate very strongly to that. Yeah. And I think, and I've had, I've had guys that I work with tell me this, but I, I think I have a good way to relate to people and to explain things on simple terms so that they can wrap their head around complex concepts. Yeah. And, you know, with my job in the repair shop, especially I'm dealing with thousandths of an inch on a regular basis. <laughs> That's not normal for people to wrap their heads around yeah. that. But a dollar bill is four thousandths of an inch, maybe two thousandths. I better check that before we <laughs> che- fact check that before for we get angry yeah. emails. But but the bottom line is you can take everyday objects and associate measurements with them, and that makes life a whole lot easier. You don't know what a quarter inch is, but you know what a pencil width is. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of stuff that I try to do is break things down for people, because in a lot of these situations, you get overwhelmed, especially again, in this age of information, there is so much stuff out there and you don't know who's an expert versus who's not. And so a lot of times I think, and this still happens in my own life, I'll, I'll watch a million videos to prep for something. And then I take a step out into my shop and I think... I don't even know where to start. And then I just turn right back around and go in the house. Yeah. And that's the most disappointing feeling to me. And I want to do anything I can to help people take that next step. Like, well, at least I know that I need to clean the shop floor. And, you know, start there. It's a good place to start. Yeah. yeah. Forward progress is a great thing. Yeah. And I say that to my employees all the time. Like, I don't expect you to learn all this overnight. I just need forward progress mm-hmm. from you. If you yeah. can make that consistent. And you can just give me that 10% more, then, then that's going to exponentially just turn into so much productivity and wisdom for you 
and that's what that's it's exciting for me to watch. I, I love watching those guys grow because you you shape something by ten percent. Those ten percents add up over time. Yeah. So um, I had this epiphany a while back, and it sure did make him picking sticks up a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> but I was I was cleaning up my. Uh, it's not a fence row yet, but it will soon have a fence uh, after the city came through and maintained the trees. And those guys just chewed through that stuff and just left the remains like bones in a graveyard, you know. And so obviously not good for a bush hog, not good for any sort of mm -hmm. mower. So I just had to take my truck out there and I had to do the dirty work. And it's not fun just walking and picking up sticks and filling up truckload after truckload. But what I realized was, man, if I just move 10% faster, if I pick up sticks that are 10% smaller than what I want to pick up, then eventually those things are going to continue to compound and I'm going to be that much more efficient. This job is going to look that much better. And so that was kind of a, a, a key thing for me to realize was 10% is not a lot to ask out of anybody. Mm. Just putting a little bit extra on there. I mean, you hear about it in workout videos all the time. They're like, come on, last 30 seconds, yeah, give it all yeah. you got. So that's, that's all I'm asking. And I, and I, it seems to work. How do you hope to grow and change and develop as a result of, of pursuing what Sawdust Boogie is all about? Well, honestly, what I hope is that the, the, uh, the viewers and the listeners will generate the content for me. I hope that they ask questions that are going to challenge me to have to grow. Hmm. Um, I'm begging somebody to ask me to learn how to weld so my wife can make me buy a welder. Um, if anybody wants to ask me how to shoot a 20-gauge shotgun, I don't know. I only own a 12-gauge. I'd love to learn how, so let's go buy one. Let's do it. Uh, but that's the deal. I want to learn what, what everybody else wants me to learn. I, it's easy for me to find things to want to learn, but yeah. I'm, I'm curious what everybody else needs help with because I want to be a teacher. This has been episode one of Sawdust Boogie. The fire is going out. It's close to midnight. And we are itching for your thoughts. We can't wait for your questions. We can't wait for your topics. Please find us somewhere. Like, subscribe, follow on Instagram, follow us on Facebook. Is that what you do on Facebook? You follow them? We would love a like and a follow. Leave a review and check us out for future content. Thanks for listening.